before we begin today. So, our scripture today comes from Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, our holy Lord above, as we consider this second commandment, we ask that you open our eyes and ears as Isaiah was given his commission to preach to a nation that would had ears but would not hear him, to preach to a nation that had eyes but would not see the glory of God. We're reminded of deaf and blind idols. Help us to not be like those deaf and blind idols. Help us to see you. Help us to hear you and help us to worship you as you have called us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we are looking at the second commandment. Thou shalt not make any graven images, as the King James says, or as it says here in, in the New International Version, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or earth beneath or the waters below. Oftentimes we look at the second commandment and we say, is this not just a repetition of the first commandment? Last week we looked at thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the fact that God is not admitting that there are other gods and he is to be first, but God is saying, I am the only God. I am talking to you, to the Israelites in a way that you understand, but I am the only God to be worshipped. And many people ask the question, are not these two commandments saying the same thing? And in fact, if you were to be in a Catholic or Lutheran church, they do take what we consider the first and second commandment and they do put them together into one commandment. And then they split the tenth commandment, the command to covet, into coveting belongings and coveting 
people. But in the Reformed tradition, we do look at this as two different commandments. And the reason we look at this as two different commandments is because the first commandment deals with who we worship. We worship God and we worship Him alone. Remember the Shema from from, um, Deuteronomy 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, or the Lord is God alone. And so the first commandment is about who we worship. And the second commandment is about how we worship that God. How do we worship Him? We worship worship Him by not forming images, uh, things that mimic animals or plants or fish or anything on earth on heaven above earth beneath or the waters below and so as we unpack that meaning what does it mean to not make idols of God or not make any idol we will look at the rule we will look at the reason we will look at warning and we will look at the promise I know I started out with two r's you were hoping for four but you only got two r's a w and a p So the first, we get the rule. What is the rule in this commandment? The rule is the thou shalt not or the you won't or you will not do this. The rule is do not make any graven images or do not make any idol in the form of anything on earth. Now, the idea of idols is something we don't understand. I mean, we have American Idol on television. It's coming back for for better or for worse. American idol is coming back, but we don't have the idea of idol here in the scriptures. The word that is translated idol at its most basic meaning means figurine or statue, and that just depends on how large it is. It's a representation of something in this earth. So Somebody makes a statue. Michelangelo made his statue of David, <clears throat> and it, which is in Rome. That at its most basic definition, that's what idol is. It's a figurine or a statue. But if we peel back the layers a little bit more as it's used in Scripture, it's more than just a figurine or a statue. It's a representative carving of something. And when used in Scripture... It's a representative carving of something divine. So an idol, as it's used here, this word that is translated for us idol, is a representation of something divine. Paul in Acts 19 is walking through this area in Athens where they have little little places where idols to different gods are set up. Maybe an idol to Zeus or an idol to Apollo or an idol to Athena or all these different idols that they have there where each of these gods is represented in these figurines, in these statues. And of course, he comes to one that's an idol to the unknown God. Now, initially, when you carve an idol to represent a God, it just merely represents this is what this God looks like. But remember, this is what a divine being looks like. So what's the temptation when you have an idol? The temptation is to look at that figurine and assign to it divine properties. And then what do you do at that point? You're no longer just worshiping the God. You're worshiping that figurine or that statue. And so the danger in having idols, even idols that are not the God of the scriptures, is that instead of worshiping those divine beings, we begin to worship that particular statue. 
Now, this actually happened in the history of Israel. We know from the the Exodus wanderings, the people of God rebelled over and over again. And in one of those rebellions and one of those sins, God sent venomous serpents into the camps to bite the people, to punish them for their sin. And when they repented, they told Abraham, God told Moses, build a serpent out of bronze, lift it up. And when the people look to this serpent that is lifted up, they will be healed. There was nothing inherently in the serpent that healed them. It was this act of trust in God and doing what God said as part of their repentance that brought them healing. Well, during the time of Hezekiah, the king Hezekiah, several hundred years later, Hezekiah has the bronze serpent destroyed. It has survived the wilderness wanderings. It has survived the period of the judges. It has survived the period of the kingship up until Hezekiah when Hezekiah takes it and has it destroyed. Why did Hezekiah have it destroyed? Because they were no longer worshiping God. They were worshiping the serpent. They would take the serpent out. They would parade it around and people would bow down to the serpent to worship it as their God that would bring them healing. Another danger in building an idol of God is that how do we take the infinite God and represent him in something concrete or finite? How do we take something that we carve with our own sinful, broken hands and fully and completely represent the God who created all things. We cannot push His glory into a wooden or to a metal or to a stone. We cannot push His infinity into something that I can hold into my hand. So we cannot adequately represent the God of the universe in the form of an idol. Now, people have tried to do this. I believe in Exodus 32 and also in 1 Kings 12, Aaron and Jeroboam tried to do this very thing. Exodus 32, the Israelites are at the base of the mountain. Remember, we just read at the end of the Ten Commandments, the Israelites said, Moses, look, we are God is infinite. God is eternal. God is powerful. God is holy. We're not. You talk to him, bring his words to us because we won't survive in God's presence. And so Moses goes up to the mountain. Well, what's the problem with that? Moses stays for a while. He stays for about 40 days. And these people who have been slaves all their life, who are not used to living a life without a leader, they come to Aaron and they say, look, Moses has been gone for a really, really long time. You do something for us. You do something to lead us. And and Aaron, instead of saying, trust God, trust Moses, he'll be back soon, he gathers up all the gold. And he takes the gold, he melts it, and he takes this molten gold and he forms it into the form of a calf. Now, a calf was typically a form that people during this time would use to represent a god because cows, bulls were strong. Um, you ever walk through a cow pasture, you know, you don't want to get on the wrong end of those pointy things. But so the strength of this and, and Aaron goes, all right, here are the gods that the gods, plural, that have brought you out of the land of Egypt. Worship them as Yahweh. Worship them as the Lord. And so what Aaron did was he took this idol and he made it of God. God was not happy. 
He judged the Israelites. Jeroboam does the same thing as the nation splits into the northern and the southern kingdom. Jeroboam makes two golden calves. He puts one in one city, one in the other city, and he tells the people, go worship them as Yahweh. Here is Yahweh, your God. Worship them. You cannot contain God in a physical representation, a earthly representation. And the danger in that is that we, excuse me, that we worship the idol instead of that. And thirdly, the third danger in an idol is if we make a human representation, we actually demean the true image of God. One of the, I took a class, actually I took two classes to the National Gallery of Art for art field trips. They had an art project they had to do. They had to choose a painting. And when it comes to art museums, I could get lost in the statue section. You take some of these older statues and it looks like a human being made out of stone. They actually had a bull there at the National Gallery of Art, this, this head of a bull. It was a life-size head of a bull. And even inside the ears, you could see the sculpture. The sculptor had taken and formed the hair inside the ears of this bull. Just the intricate design of that. But if you take even a human representation with that level of intricacy, what's the problem? It has eyes, but it can't see. It has ears, but it can't hear. It looks alive, but it's not. And so when we make an image of something human, we actually demean the true image of God in that. So the rule is thou shalt not have an idol. What's the reason for this rule? It's because God is a jealous God. Now, what do we typically think of when we think of jealousy? We typically think of a husband getting jealous of some guy hitting on his wife or a boyfriend getting jealous of some girl hitting on his girlfriend. And we normally see it as a negative emotion. Well, that's close to God's jealousy, but it's a positive emotion for God. Because if I see somebody flirting with my wife, should I be upset? Absolutely. Because she and I have made a covenant to be in relationship together, an exclusive relationship, and anything that comes along that puts that relationship in danger, I should be upset with. I should almost viciously protect that covenant relationship. God in the Ten Commandments is establishing His covenant with the people. And God says, you don't worship an idol, you don't worship other gods, because I am a jealous God. In anything that puts our covenant relationship in danger, I'm going to fight hard against. In fact, God uses marriage as the metaphor to explain the relationship between him and his people. Think of Hosea. Hosea called to marry Gomer, the prostitute, and be faithful to her, even though she actively went out to destroy the covenant relationship. And then Paul in Ephesians says that marriage is the model of the relationship between Jesus and the church. The reason we do not have idols, the reason we do not worship other gods is because God is a jealous God. Philip Ryken defines this as a holy jealousy is one that guards someone right, someone's rightful possession. We are God's rightful possession and he will guard us jealous, jealously. 
So we have the rule, thou shalt not have graven images. The reason is that God is a jealous God. The command also comes with a warning. And the warning is this, God, God will judge violations of His law. This is a statement about God that appears throughout Scripture. It appears later in Exodus. It appears in the Psalms. The prophets take this, and we even see it in the New Testament. And the warning is this. I am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Now, it's important for us to take this all together. God does not punish my children for my sin. God punishes my children for their own sin. But typically, my sin shows up in my children. Sorry. But all of my bad attributes have probably shown up in you in some way, shape, or another. But if I hate God, it typically shows up in my children as well, does it not? If I love God, which we'll look at here in a minute for the promise, that typically shows up in my children as well. Now, those patterns can be broken. You know, there are plenty of children out there whose parents hated God, whose grandparents hated God, whose great-grandparents hated God, who love God. God can break the cycle. Unfortunately, there's plenty of children out there whose grandparents loved God, whose great-grandparents loved God, whose parents loved God, and yet they hate Him. Unfortunately, sometimes God allows Satan to break the cycle as well. But the warning in this is, don't worship other gods because you're setting up families for destruction. You're setting up families for continuous idolatry to the third and fourth generation of those who hate God. The generational nature of the hate of God is a cycle that can be broken. And yet it's a cycle that oftentimes is not. And yet this command also comes with a promise. The rule, the reason, the warning, and the promise. The promise is, is that God will show love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. If we follow God's law, if we follow God's rule, if we protect the covenant, our end of the covenant, He offers grace. He offers mercy. He offers forgiveness. And these two concepts smashed together are something that we have issues with as humans. Because judgment and mercy for us are two seemingly opposite things. Somebody makes me mad. Somebody attacks me. Somebody says bad things about them. I can either judge them or be merciful to them. I can either punish them or forgive them. It's two opposite response. Two opposite responses, is it not? So how can God be both the God who judges those who hate me and the God who is compassionate and merciful to those who love Him? Because the, the, the reality of life is that we learned in Genesis 3 is that because of sin, we all are on the hate side of the equation when it comes to God. So how can we get from one side of the equation to the other? And if we get from one side of the equation to the other, how does God give us grace instead of judgment? And the answer is always is the cross. Because that part of God that says, 
I will judge those who hate me to the third and fourth generation. That judgment part of God poured out upon the cross, upon Jesus, as He hung there having obeyed the law, having loved God perfectly through His whole life. God poured His judgment out upon Christ, not in some cosmic child abuse kind of a way, but in God but in Jesus willingly satisfying the judgment of God against sin. In Jesus saying, these people do not deserve God's forgiveness. I do not deserve God's judgment, but I'll take it so that they can have His mercy and His grace. And so the comma, the semicolon, the period, whatever it is in the representation of this idea that God judges, I am the the Lord, the Lord, the, the, the just and righteous one who does not allow sin to go unpunished, but the Lord who is compassionate and loving, whatever punctuation mark joins those two things together rests upon the cross. Because the judgment falls upon the cross so that grace might pour from there onto the lives of the people who love him, who believe in him, who repent and are baptized. The promise in this is that God gives mercy and forgives the sins of those who love him. Now, so we have the rule. The rule is thou shalt have no idols. The reason God is a jealous God, the warning God is a judging God and the promise God is a merciful and forgiving God. We don't have problems with idols today, do we? I mean, none of us have these little statues sitting in our house where we go in every day and we bow ourselves down to these statues. So this is a a non-issue for us, right? (coughs) Wrong. Have you ever caught yourself saying something like, you know, I really love the idea that Jesus is a loving Savior, but, you know, that idea of hell just doesn't work for me. Do you ever catch yourself saying, you know, I like the parts of the Bible where God reveals himself to be somebody who takes care of the poor, who takes care of the immigrant, who takes care of the oppressed and the downtrodden, but I don't really like X. That is putting God into an image. Because what we're saying is God has revealed himself as a God who judges sin and a God who is merciful to sinners. I like one, but I don't like the other. And so I'm going to worship God the way I see him. I'm going to worship God the way I like him. I am going to follow the forgiving God, but not the judging God. I'm going to follow the socially aware God, but not the God who calls me to live a holy life. And at that point, we have made an idol that we worship instead of God. Is God a God that thinks social awareness is important? Yes, Is God a forgiving and merciful God? Yes. Is God a God who judges sin? Yes. And we must worship Him as all aspects of God. And the reality is we fall far short. Even the best of us makes an idol of God and worships a God in our own image in some way, shape, or another. But we're saved by the Savior who didn't who worshiped God perfectly, who loved God perfectly, who worshiped God for every aspect of himself. 
as we study Scripture, the temptation is there. Man, I, I, I tell you, I'm the first to admit I love the forgiveness of God. And if I could preach forgiveness alone without judgment, then I'd probably I'd be a much calmer person a lot of times. But what is forgiveness without judgment? It's an empty message. What do I need to be forgiven of if God's not judging? What does God judge if he doesn't forgive? We take God as a package. We take God as his fullness and we worship him in that way. We don't squeeze God into our own conception of him. It may not be a physical representation, but we have this mental idol of who we think God should be. And God says, no, worship me as I am, not as you think I am. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, as we consider your law, rem- take away from us those areas where we don't want to worship you, where we don't want to consider, and help us to worship you as you are fully given to us in Scripture. Help us not squeeze you into our mold, but help squeeze our worship into yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.